0: Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The story of Axel Rose and his band Guns N' Roses, their immense success and destructiveness, is so wild and intense that two episodes were needed to properly tell this story. If you're just getting hip to this now, I suggest you hit pause and go back to Disgraceland, episode 49, part 1 of the Guns N' Roses story, where we discuss Axl Rose's upbringing, the origins of the band, and the influence the city of Los Angeles had on their music, as well as the tragic events at the Donington Monsters of Rock Festival in 1988. In this episode, we dive deeper into the band's inner dynamics, Axl's state of mind, and highly antagonistic relationship with the press. And of course, more of the band's great music. That music I played you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Mellow Stuffed Shirts MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Rush Rush by Paula Abdul. And why would I play you that specific slice of former LA Laker cheerleader cheese? Could I afford it? Because that, was the number one song in America on July 2nd, 1991. And that was the day Guns N' Roses took the stage at the Riverport Theater in St. Louis, Missouri, and all hell broke loose. On this, our 50th episode, Cheerleader Cheese, Rocket Queens, Recovered Memories, and Guns N' Roses. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Neither girl was doing it for Axel. It was hot, sure, for a 17-year-old who couldn't get laid, maybe. But for anyone who knew anything about sex, it was kind of lame. These girls sounded like they were faking it, forcing it for the microphones. they were having sex with Axel on the floor, both at different times. He was doing his best, but he was in his head, distracted, too concerned with getting a good take than giving a good lay. The microphones must've distracted the girls, too, Axel didn't really know. He just wanted them to be natural, to do what they would normally do. But it was a lot to ask of anyone, and a lot to ask for everyone who was in the studio with him while he tried recording a real-life female orgasm administered by him for the benefit of the Guns N' Roses song, Rocket Queen, that his band was recording for their debut album. Too many oh yeah babies and forced breathiness, too many quizzical squeals and ill-placed moans, Axel didn't want this to sound like a cheesy porno flick or worse, like something out of a Goddamn Zucker Brothers movie. He wanted it to sound real, hard, like his band. But Axel couldn't blame the girls. And they were giving it the old sunset try, but sex is sometimes messy, it's physical, and given the circumstance demanding. The mics were constantly being bumped into. Carefully placed by the studio engineer to perfectly capture the sound Axel wanted, Every time the mics were disturbed, the engineer had to come back into the live room in the middle of the sex act to readjust the mics. Nothing to see here, keep doing what you're doing. I'm just gonna, yep, that, that's it, right, right there. Okay, all set. Uh, get back to it and I'll, uh, yeah, I'm just gonna head back in there. The engineer would then head back into the control room where various bandmates with rolling eyes and snickering cocaine tongues would do their best to keep it in their pants. It's not like the girls were oblivious to what was going on. The candles in the dimly lit studio couldn't hide the awkwardness of the situation. The interruptions from the engineer happened continuously, and as a result, the rhythm was busted up constantly. And as anyone who is experienced with sex can tell you, rhythm is the key to good sex. And Axel wasn't just going for good sex, he was going for great sex. It needed to sound authentic, and it wasn't, and he was getting pissed. He needed a pro, not a prostitute, but a professional. A girl who was dialed in, turned up, sex-minded nearly 100% of the time. The type of girl who walked in a room and you just got the vibe immediately. To Axel, these girls were rare. Most groupies acted like they wanted sex, and sure, some most definitely did. But what most wanted was to just get up close to the rock star gods, see what they were all about, coax their personalities out through their vulnerabilities, and worm their way into some sort of relationship via their own natural maternal instincts. And before you knew it, if the groupie was lucky and any good, she'd be dating her rock god. And then who knew what could happen? Her whole world would open up. Sex was just the price of admission. Axel wasn't looking for this type of girl. He was looking for that rare woman, the kind with the torturous libido, the kind that thought about basically one thing in any social situation. Which guy am I gonna fuck? The kind that didn't care about your feelings, or hers for that matter. The kind of girl who exuded sex, and not just because of her looks. With this type of girl, the attraction was different. Less physical, more chemical, scientific. Wherever she went, she exploded into the room, and her presence, her pheromones, set off tiny little explosions in the minds of whichever men were lucky enough to be around her. What in the hell they imagined would sex with this woman be like? This type of girl's vibe, her essence was that combustible, explosive, like a rocket, drawing everyone in like a queen, like a rocket queen. Axel knew just the girl. Only problem was, she was dating one of his best friends and the drummer in his band, Steven Adler. She was a 19-year-old stripper who went by the name Adriana. Who knew if that was a real name? Did it matter? No. All that mattered was that she was pissed that her wannabe rock star boyfriend, Steven Adler, was dipping his little Vic Firth in whatever whore he could get his hands on around the strip so when axel laid it on her what he wanted to do have sex with her in the studio and record the act to overdub onto a song that steven was actually playing drums on adriana jumped at the chance revenge is a dish best served hot and in front of a live studio audience with the tape rolling axel's inclination was correct the results speak for themselves the song rocket queen is one of their best recorded tracks, and the recorded sex act in the middle does indeed sound authentic, almost as important. The rumors about the recording sessions spread like wildfire, and the infamous reputation of the band spread even further. And people in the industry in the Sunset Strip metal scene took note. This wasn't a band of posers, these guys were the real deal, and their singer was fucking crazy. And there were other rumors too, mainly involving heroin. The band were savage junkies, and they were going to be lucky to live to see the release of their debut album, or so went the thinking. And if heroin didn't kill them, then AIDS would. Word started spreading that Slash, the band's guitarist, was openly worrying to anyone who would listen about a coming L.A. metal scene AIDS epidemic. And if he or David Lee Roth or Gene Simmons caught the deadly, at the time, HIV virus that it would be an instant death sentence for him, his band, and the entire Los Angeles heavy metal community. With or without dangerous sex, the band was doing their best to make truth of the death rumors. Bassist Duff McKagan was drowning himself in vodka, stuffing himself with pills, and there simply weren't enough of either to satiate his appetite. Same goes for heroin in Steven Adler. He was consumed by the drug and rendered incompetent as a drummer on numerous occasions. The fact that he had other assets, like his electric Nice Guy Eddie personality, likely kept him in the band despite his terrible addiction. Heroin was just as gripping on other members of the band as well. Axel did his time with the drug, but got hip quick and quit. Slash was another story. While recording their first album, he was so blitzed on smack that during a photo shoot, the photographer needed to dispatch an intern to crouch behind Slash in order to hold him up like a life-size rock and roll muppet just so he could stand long enough to have his picture taken. Slash was also found one morning, literally passed out in the gutter on Hollywood Boulevard, sleeping off a dope binge. He'd overdosed once already and was quickly brought back to life, but still, rumors spread that the guitarist of the most promising band on the strip had died of a heroin overdose. It was a surprise to pretty much nobody. Heroin and Guns N' Roses went hand in hand, and it was in large part because of the band's other guitarist, Izzy Stradlin. It's hard to see it now, just how cool Izzy Stradlin was. Sure, you see him in the videos and in the pictures, and he looks cool enough, but next to Slash and Axel, he definitely reads supporting role, but that's just image talking. To those who knew the band back then, and who knew and came in contact with Izzy Stradlin, there was no doubt about it. He was the coolest dude they'd ever met. Nowadays, we throw around the word influencer like it actually means anything real aside from ad dollars. Today, all an influencer is is someone who can best represent a highly curated, stylized, and staged version of themselves online. Their authenticity is heralded as an attribute, which is ironic because digital life is so often disconnected from one's authentic life. Social media influencers are highly selective in determining what parts of their lives they let the public in on And if they can calibrate their content correctly, the result for them is a massive following, and voila, influence. Because of the nature of how an influencer becomes an influencer, it is therefore impossible for an influencer to not care, which is also ironic, given that the very essence of cool is to not care. And back in the pre-internet days of rock and roll, cool meant influence. And in the sunset strip scene at the time, Nobody was cooler and thus more influential than Izzy Stradlin. His attitude cut whatever vibe was in the room. You knew he was there and that he was somebody, even when he was a nobody. You were only slightly intimidated by him, but it was more his vibe than his physicality. You wanted to know what kind of trip he was on, where he got his junky lean, those stone-cold secondhand threads and that minimalist jewelry. His scraggly snarl and dyed jet black hair set against his relative youth gave him a weird pirate intern look. He looked like Keith Richards's mini-me, like his cool was cut from the same cloth as Keith's with his disaffected gaze and casual grasp of whatever the hell happened to be going on around him. He was there, wherever, but far away at the same time and still demanding everyone's attention. Izzy Stradlin wasn't waiting for his man. He was the man. And he truly did not care about anything but his guitar and by extension, his band. Sort of, but not really. He didn't really care about his bandmates or his girlfriends or his own well-being. And as a result, he shot a lot of heroin. He didn't care who knew and he didn't care about getting arrested for dealing it. He was too cool to care. So along with being cool, heroin became part of Izzy Stradlin's identity. And because of his influence, Lots of other musicians, scenesters, and kids in the metal scene at the time started doing heroin. Axel later, when discussing with a reporter GNR's early days during the time of heroin's resurgence in Los Angeles, said, Well, it was Izzy that brought it back. This is entirely screwed up and strikes me as something so shallow and simple that it could only happen in LA. Los Angeles, sex, drugs, hard rock and roll, unquestionable cool, influence, In a no-fucks-given attitude, each element combined to form one of the most successful debut albums of all time, Guns N' Roses, aptly titled Appetite for Destruction. Okay, hey, listen, if you're one of the few people out there who's new to podcasts, new to Disgraceland, new to true crime, if you have not already listened to the wildly popular and hysterically funny and informative podcast, My Favorite Murder, hosted by my friends Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark on the Exactly Right Network, then what are you waiting for? You got to check out My Favorite Murder in each episode. They're going to tell you stories about infamous serial killers, cold cases, incredible survivor stories and listen these guys are wildly popular for a reason they have an incredible chemistry they're hysterical they're smart as all get up and you're instantly going to feel like they're long lost friends They've got great new episodes on the subjects I've already mentioned, but they've got this whole treasure trove of back episodes, including well-known stories from true crime and music history, like the deaths of Sid Vicious and Nancy Spungin, the murder of pop singer Selena, and now the infamous story of the Cocaine Bear. I've known Karen in Georgia since the beginning of my sort of foray into podcasting. They've been heroes of mine. I was on their podcast in March of 2022 to share my hometown story about a prison break party that I attended in high school. Uh, And they told me it was one of their most popular episodes. So you can check that out as well. Listen to My Favorite Murder wherever you listen to podcasts. Brand new episodes drop every Thursday. However you choose to join, all you got to do is go to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Support the show for just $5 a month, five bucks, or sign up for an annual plan and get two months free. Come join me and your fellow discos at Disgraceland, all access by visiting disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Guns N' Roses, with the release of Appetite for Destruction, were firmly on their way to becoming the biggest band on the planet. With constant touring and the eventual support of radio and MTV behind their early videos and singles, stories in Rolling Stone and Spin Magazine, not to mention fawning praise from the heavy metal press, the band, by the time the fall of 89 rolled around, were by all accounts massive. But despite Axl Rose's band's growing fame, things were not right. The deaths at Donington by themselves were hard enough to swallow. These were kids, fans, And they were dead, and the press had blamed the band. Two dead at Donington, screamed the headlines. That was one more than Altamont. Axel couldn't let it go. His rage intensified. It seemed that whatever he did, the press was out to get him. And the notoriety caused his band's popularity to grow even more. And the more his own fame and celebrity grew, the more shit he seemed to have to take from the press. He tried retreating into himself, but... MTV had begun playing the band's videos in heavy rotation. Their popularity skyrocketed, and with it, a need for the record label to satisfy the demand of the growing Guns N' Roses fanbase. A new album was needed quickly to capitalize on their success, but a proper full length was impossible to put together with the band's touring schedule, not to mention the near debilitating heroin habits of Izzy, Slash, and Steven, and the general growing dysfunction of the band as a unit. So it was decided that an EP called g and Lies would be released as a stopgap. The concept was tabloid trash, a world that the band was becoming all too familiar with. The artwork was a National Enquirer-like cover that poked fun at the press and its growing fascination with the band. And the music was a mix of covers and unreleased tunes that the band had been working up live. To Axel. G and R lies scanned the world of celebrity decadence and tawdry gossip against the tough-talking, hard-living, unseen street reality. As a record, it was bipolar, just like Axel's Los Angeles, just like him. Axel saw himself as a voice for this reality, just as he believed Easy E saw himself as a voice for his reality down in South Central. So Axel was going to spare none of the details and none of the reality he'd come to learn and to live around in Los Angeles. On the song One in a Million, he sang out shockingly offensive slurs. When you first hear the N word in the lyrics, there is a split second where your brain stops listening and you involuntarily ask yourself, Did he really just say that? And then, as if to answer your internal monologue, Axel immediately follows up the N word with, That's right, as in, Yeah, motherfucker, I just said that, so what? Understandably, the press lost its collective mind. Axel was quickly labeled a racist as well as a homophobe. The backlash was immediate. Radio refused to play the song. Billboard magazine excoriated the band. Certain promoters refused to market the record. Comedians, celebrities, politicians, fellow musicians all called out Axel publicly. Axel claimed that the song was about a real-life experience he had at a bus station in Hollywood. It was reality and therefore, in his mind, worthy of documenting. However, the actual reality was that Axel was leveling a haymaker at the press, who he must have known would react intensely in response to his highly offensive lyrics. It was the 16-year-old in Lafayette, Indiana, lashing out, but this time, at a bigger straw man and under a much bigger spotlight. But somehow, none of it mattered. The album was an immense seller. And despite the public outcry and notoriety of the band, or perhaps because of it, Mick Jagger wanted Guns N' Roses to open for the Rolling Stones at L.A.'s Coliseum. It was a big deal to open for the Stones, even for a band as massive as Guns N' Roses at the time. and Their payday was immense, and the band was stoked, most of them anyways. After G&R's soundcheck and having to entertain Mick and Eric Clapton with his David Bowie dust-up story, Axel bailed split for his girlfriend Erin Everly's apartment in Beverly Hills. And there was nothing there for him backstage after sound checking, His band wasn't talking to each other. All of them, with the exception of himself and Duff, were completely consumed by heroin, and Duff was drunk all the time. Axel told Izzy the night before that he was quitting the band. It was too much, too dark, too destructive. By all accounts, this day, this night, was shaping up to be more of the same. So Axel bounced. The Coliseum filled up. GNR sat backstage, doing drugs, drinking Jack, listening to Prince. With each tick of the clock, their management grew more worried. Where was Axel? Their set was at nine, it was now six. Axel had previously demonstrated his ability to pull a no show, and being late to the stage had already become a regular occurrence, but this was different. This was the Stones, this was an opening slot, and they were lucky to have the gig. Showing up late, going on late, or worse, no-showing, would not only be the ultimate sign of disrespect, it would very likely break up the band. But that didn't matter to Axel, who, ensconced in his girlfriend's apartment, had already broken up the band in his mind. He wasn't gonna head down to South Central to the Coliseum to do the gig. Fuck Slash, fuck Izzy, fuck Steven, Duff, his management, and fucking fuck Mick fucking Jagger and his fucking David Bowie stories. Axel was done. Six o'clock became six thirty. By this time, GNR management started talking about a plan. How are they going to not only find their lead singer, but how are they going to get him to the gig? Izzy spoke up out of his heroin haze. He wanted to do this gig. Keith and Ronnie were his heroes, and he didn't want to look like an asshole. He's at Aaron's, He blurted out to anyone and to no one in particular. Management quit dialing Axel's pad and quickly dialed Aaron's. And the phone rang and rang. Nothing. And they tried again. More ringing. More of the same. Nothing. No answer. Six thirty became seven. They tried Aaron's again and again. And seven became seven thirty. And again. Eight o'clock. One hour to showtime. One more call. And finally, they heard a voice. Aaron's. He's not fucking coming. He's quitting. You hear that? He's done. In the background, they heard yelling and music, Axel on a tear. They tried reason. It was gonna be all right, tell him that. Tell him Slash is gonna clean himself up after the gig. So is Izzy, it's all gonna be fine. We're gonna send a car to pick him. And she hung up on them. Management wasted no time. They, along with the production chief who had a buddy on the force quickly dialed LAPD and told them who they were, who they were looking for and what they needed two uniformed cops who know how to not ask questions to quickly head over to this address in Beverly Hills and to grab both occupants, to cuff them if necessary, and deliver them to the backstage Coliseum within the next 60 minutes. The banging on Aaron's door startled both her and Axel. The cops meant business, it was clear. Axel knew he'd been beat. He grabbed his leather and hopped in the back of the cruiser. Sirens, blazing, it blasted through LA traffic down Sunset, over to La Cienega, onto the 10, down the off-ramp, through the throngs of fans crowding the streets surrounding the Coliseum, into the gated production lot, to the backstage with minutes to spare before Axel would jump on stage in front of 80,000 people and drop one hell of a bomb. The hometown crowd was with them from the moment they took the stage, and the roar from the audience was massive. And the energy was so intense that Axel and the band were in and out of the first song in what felt like seconds. In the break before the next song, Axel took a beat. He held the microphone in his left hand, grabbed the mic stand with his right, and started to the tip of center stage. He saddled the mic into its stand and began addressing the crowd. I just want to say, I hate to do this on stage, but I tried every other fucking way. And unless certain people in this band Get their shit together. These will be the last Guns N' Roses shows you will fucking ever see. Slash and Izzy could not believe what they were hearing. Getting called out on stage in front of nearly 100,000 people, five of whom were rolling stones. And to their horror, Axel wasn't done. Because I'm tired of too many people in this organization dancing with Mr. Goddamn Brownstone. The band kicked into the song, or staggered into it. It sucked. Everyone but Axel was too shell shocked to focus on playing, not to mention stoned out of their gourds, and the rest of the set sucked too. The Stones, on the other hand, killed it. Mick Jagger, cute bastard that he is, dedicated their latest single, Mixed Emotions, to Axel. Button your lip, baby. Button your lip. The gig sucked, but in a way, for Axel, it was a triumph. He made his point, and he had to. Something had to give. He couldn't take the pressure of leading around a band of junkies on top of everything else. His relationship with Aaron, the demands of the record label, and increasingly the press, who, as of late, had become an insanely prickish thorn in his side. Axel split after their set, half-joking to David Lee Roth on the way out of the backstage area that if he wanted the gig, he could fucking have it. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. In regards to giving up on Dancing with Mr. Brownstone, unlike Slash, Izzy got the message. It was a combination of Axel's threat and seeing his hero, Stone's guitarist, Keith Richards, up close and personal, cheating death throughout middle age. What were the odds that a second Chuck Berry-obsessed guitarist in one of the world's greatest rock and roll bands would also escape heroin's mortal grip and live to see his 40s? Izzy didn't know the answer, but he knew his odds weren't good. So he gave up dancing with every kind of intoxicant. But as a result, he now barely interacted with his bandmates and elected to travel via his own tour bus with a smoke show of a girlfriend rather than fly with the traveling party, including groupies on the band's chartered plane. Steven Adler either refused or was simply unable to give up heroin, and he was unceremoniously kicked out of the band. Duff, depressed from splitting with his wife, had retreated into his own bummed-out alcoholic nightmare, while his new bandmates, drummer Matt Sorum and newly added keyboard player Dizzy Reed, did their best to fit into the highly dysfunctional band. A band that was under immense pressure to deliver a follow-up album that would outperform their massively successful debut. The recording of said follow-up was wrought with tension. Axel's bandmates seldom appeared in the studio at the same time as he did for fear of running up against his violent mood swings. And thus sandbagging whatever slogging progress they'd made up to that point. The album was recorded piecemeal and at times by remote committee, the exact opposite of Appetite for Destruction, which was a short, frenetic shotgun blast of a musical statement made by five guys living the same life, dealing with the same problems, and trying to get to the same place at the same time. That simplicity of intent was gone now. Axel was trying to make a grand creative statement while various members of his band, were at times trying to work around dysfunctions, addiction, newfound fame, and an increasingly volatile and uncompromising lead singer. Guns N' Roses' new album, or albums, plural, Use Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2, marked a new era. With the majority of the band checked out in one way or another, it became the Axl Rose Show, and it was a glorious shit show to watch unfold. The combination of insane rock star behavior and creative excess involving video dolphins, public spatting with Warren Beatty, mountain lion pets, and stage attire that ran the gamut from protective baseball gear to kilts and 2 tight bicycle shorts. The pure rock and roll days of the Ritz show were long gone. These days, Guns N' Roses were a worldwide phenom, the greatest rock and roll band on the planet. Guns N' Roses were the real deal, and very nearly coming apart at the seams because of it. Life at the moment for Axel and the rest of the band was tense, but backstage at the Riverport Amphitheater on July 2nd, 1991, things were calm. While Izzy fingered his guitar, a slash, oblivious, fucked with the FM dial on a transistor radio and nursed a bottle of Jack Daniels. Duff mixed up his hundredth vodka cranberry, his head somewhere else entirely, Matt warmed up with the drum pad, an endless triple stroke drum roll, eighth note triplets, then sixteenth note triplets that were both only slightly out of time with Izzy's riff. Matt dropped the beat indiscriminately to sip cold domestic from a can. And this being St. Louis, the domestic was Clydesdale piss from the brewery of Messieurs Anheuser and Bush. And Dizzy was nowhere in sight, off somewhere chasing Skirt, taking advantage of his new fame. And Axel was quiet, sipping champagne. Pre-show jitters time was the only time the band could stand each other's presence. They waited, bonded by the incredibly rare reality they were about to go through together. Something very few people on the planet ever experience. The adoration of 20,000 screaming fans who all want to either be you or fuck you. The exact type of rare experience that can bond you together and overcome even the deepest divisions. Axel had one in a million on his mind. It had been a while since they performed it, and who needed the headache? Axel took this as a defeat of sorts. Despite the controversy surrounding the song's lyrics, it was still a good song. Axel toyed with the idea of sneaking it into the set that night, but the thought of it was short-lived. It was nearly showtime, the only time of day that mattered. G&R took the stage to a packed and rabid house, and by now the band had their stage show wired tight. Axel insisted they fly by the seat of their spandex and Levi's without a set list to keep it fresh. But the band did rely on a handful of sequential songs guaranteed to drive audiences wild. Welcome to the Jungle, and then a downshift into the anthemic ballad Civil War. After that, a drum solo from Matt so Axel could suck on an oxygen mask backstage, and then a guitar solo from Slash and into the theme from The Godfather, and finally into the barn-burning Rocket Queen to close the show. The crowd recognized the song the instant the drums picked up. They knew this was the closer, their last moments of the show to dig in and enjoy, to stay transported, taken away to that special place from the realities of the real world, from their shitty jobs, their parents, their schools. They pumped their fists, danced, sang along, and did their best to rage with their rock gods on stage in front of them. From the blinding stage lights, Axel could only see them swaying en masse flashback to Donington. He ripped into the first verse. He wondered about security. Up front, it was lax. To Axel, the security staff seemed more interested in the band than in protecting the crowd. Pigs. His anger shot up through his chest and into his throat. His breath quickened, and the words to the second half of the verse came out rushed and erratic. Axel honed in on a civilian in the first couple rows. Was that a fan or a member of the press snapping photos? The press were only allowed a certain amount of sanctioned pictures per show, and the band was to be photographed during set times at the beginning of their set, and from the confines of the camera well up in front of the stage only, not from within the audience. Axel boiled. Fucking press. Give them an inch and they take a goddamn mile. The press did whatever the hell they liked, wrote whatever the hell they wanted, spread whatever fucking rumors they felt like spreading, and they had carte blanche to fuck with you just like Mick Jagger and David Bowie and Warren fucking Beatty, just like the West Hollywood Sheriff's deputies, and most definitely just like the hit cops back in Lafayette. And they were all out to get him, to take advantage of him, just like his father had done. (laughs) During the manic rise of his band over the past couple of years, Axel Rose doubled down on therapy, and through analysis uncovered what is believed by some in the psychotherapy community to be called, quote-unquote, Recovered memories Recovered memories are exactly what they sound like they are. Memories recovered from deep in your past. Oftentimes, they're of events so traumatic you've blocked them out. Other times, they're memories from your infancy or even from the womb. In Axel's case, it was a combination of the former two. Axel claimed that through therapy, he had discovered that his father, his real father, the father whose name he was never to mention in his house, had raped him as a two-year-old. Axel bravely went public with the information as he tried to sort out his emotions in real time. The public watched him burn fast and loud with his band across the world stage. The press took note, of course, and continued to pile on. With psychotherapy, Axel felt himself making progress, but toward what he didn't exactly know. A torrent of pain, shame, and high-pitched anger raged inside of him stronger and more intensely than ever before. And on stage in St. Louis that night, just as he was every night, he was about to blow. As he sang out the chorus to Rocket Queen, Axel focused on the dude in the audience taking pictures. Shit, it was worse than he thought. Dude wasn't taking photos, he was videotaping. Axel got three lines deep before it all became too much to take. He stopped singing and screamed into the mic. Hey, take that, take that. Now get that guy and take that. Axel had stopped singing completely and was pointing at the dude with the camera, imploring security to stop him. Axel could see now, dude wasn't a member of the press, he was a biker. Nobody did anything. Axel raged at the inaction. Here he was, helpless again, the band confused, continued to the chorus behind him. Fuck this, Axel thought. Press member, biker, whatever, it didn't matter. When not one member of the venue's security team moved to help him, Axel literally flew into action. He barked into the mic, I'll take it, goddammit, before slamming the mic down and diving headfirst into the audience to solve the problem himself. The band, almost on cue, resolved the chorus and began muddling through an instrumental version of the second verse while their singer went at it, wildly throwing punches in the first few rows. Axel, unaware of who he was fucking with, began manically flailing and seriously pissing off members of the Saddle Tramps Motorcycle Club. Local security knew where their bread was buttered and went at Axel instead of the bikers. Axel resisted, kicking, punching at everyone in sight. But when it became clear that security wasn't helping, GNR's roadies entered the fray and pulled Axel back up on stage, but not before he landed a full-fisted punch in the grill of one of the crowd members who got up into his face. But once he was back on stage, Axel grabbed the mic, pissed, and quickening his pace toward the side of the stage, said, Well, thanks to the lame-ass security, I'm going home. And with that, he slammed the mic into the stage and stormed off. Slash leaned into a mic and added a casual, We're out of here. And that was it. Show over. The crowd was stunned, confused. No one moved. No one knew what was going on. GNR's rs roadies quickly went about breaking down the band's gear, a clear signal that the show was definitely done. And the party was over. Guns N' Roses weren't coming back. The beer cans began raining down on the stage from the audience, the booze started. At first, the smattering, and then the chorus of an angry mob. The roadies were pissed, and rightly so. They began to taunt the audience, inciting them even more. Drunk, angry, and violent, the audience turned on itself. The saddle tramps went alpha, erupting on anyone who got in their way while making their exit. A naked man ran around the floor frantically, blood pouring from a wound in his head. The police descended to restore order and were openly challenged by fans. Beatings commenced, batons, steel-toed kicks to the skull, a chant of fuck you pigs rose up from the audience. The crowd started ripping up the chairs from the floor, pulling them apart and launching them to the stage. And the cops reeled out the fire hose and attempted to use it to beat back the crowd. But the water pressure was so weak that the audience began moving toward the water to cool off, and thus toward the stage. One of the giant video screens on the side of the stage was pulled down, and the massive 60-ton sound and light rig lurched uncomfortably from side to side as idiotic fans swung from its cables. Riverport was about to make Donington look like a walk in the park until the cops broke out a tear gas-like substance and got a hold of the situation. In the end, it was a bloody riot that Axel Rose's deep well of anger had incited. 65 people badly injured, 25 of them police officers, dozens arrested, and hundreds of thousands of dollars in property damage. Axel was eventually charged with four counts of assault and one for property damage. The jury found him guilty and the judge fined him $50,000. It was worth it, Axel thought. They all had it coming. Axel Rose's past, both as a civilian and a celebrity, is filled with intense drama, violence, riots, beef, arrests, scandal, and so much more. It's impossible to detail all of it in two 30-minute podcasts without sounding like you're piling on or being exploitative. On the other hand, The physical abuse allegations by ex-wives Erin Everly and supermodel Stephanie Seymour must be mentioned, even though claims by both were denied by Axl and eventually settled out of court. There is no clean explanation of Axl Rose or of Guns N' Roses. Rock stars are messy. It's part of what makes them great artists. All of the psychosis, the inner turmoil, the anger, it often leads to great music. You know this. We talk about it all the time. In this case, Axl Rose is no different than James Brown, Sid Vicious, John Lennon, Easy E, and too many others to list. Like them, he made great music. And like them, his behavior is hard to forgive. And like them, from his earliest days, he was scarred by severe trauma. What that does to someone in their formative years is unexplainable, and that's a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Disgraceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to DisgracelandPod.com membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit DisgracelandPod.com membership for details rate and review the show and follow us on instagram tiktok twitter and facebook at disgraceland pod and on youtube at youtube.com slash at disgraceland pod rock and roll